0: In the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, we find revealed to us one of the most beautiful and most meaningful parables in all the Bible. It has been read by so many and yet practiced by so few. It is a parable of universal significance and universal application. I am convinced today that if this parable were to be understood, it truly would remove any semblance of pride, arrogance, envy, and selfishness from one's heart it would cause all to be determined to lay their all upon the altar of service and sacrifice to god if we properly understood and applied this parable today it would remove wars and partialities of all kinds from our world if there is in all the bible a parable of practical benefit and service to mankind it is in this lesson that jesus taught a long long time ago there are three basic divisions in this parable that I mentioned briefly to you just a moment ago, but here they are in, in greater detail. First of all, we have a question, then we have an answer, and finally, we have an application. We're going to discuss all three of these in our study this morning. But first of all, the occasion of this parable. You know, sometimes it's hard to determine what it is that we're going to speak about. In fact, I remember uh, over the years terry uh, and i talking about this very thing and terry said one time he said you know he said one of the hardest things in preparing a sermon is the time that's spent in trying to determine what topic that we want to speak about i think that anyone who has ever stood in the pulpit and who has ever talked to the same people over and over again over a period of years with all the material that you have, in trying to assess what's the very best topic that's to be discussed on that occasion, sometimes that is our greatest challenge. But Jesus was different. Jesus never had to wake up one day and decide, what am I going to preach tonight? What am I going to preach when I get to Galilee? I wonder what I'm gonna preach over in Capernaum. I wonder in advance what it's going to be like so that I can better prepare myself, so that I can prepare my mind, so that I can prepare myself to preach that sermon to those people. That's what we do when we hold meetings sometimes. It's difficult to know what to preach on. But Jesus was the greatest man that ever lived. He was the greatest teacher that the world ever knew. And Jesus could do something that you and I can't. Jesus could stand there before an audience of people, he could assess the crowd, he could assess the people that were there, and he could preach the perfect sermon right there for that particular occasion. And that's what he does on this one too. In the 10th chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus is interrupted by one of the so-called religious elite. Here it is on the scene, Jesus is speaking words of great benefit, he's speaking words of great blessing, and then on the scene, here comes a lawyer, and this lawyer is to ask Jesus a very important question. This lawyer says to Jesus, interrupting him, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But you know, Jesus knew that this man did not have an honest heart. He knew that this man really wasn't asking, really wasn't wanting to know what a person would do in order to be saved. Now, would that every person that ever lives would ask such a question because the greatest need that a man has is salvation, and that's because the greatest problem that a man has is sin. Would that everyone would be concerned with their soul to ask the question, what must I do? To be saved. But the Bible says this man comes to Jesus, and when he speaks to Jesus, he comes to him for the purpose of tempting him, testing him, and trying him. Right there in the middle of the Lord's sermon, he stands up and he asks that question. But Jesus responds to this man by asking him a question. He says, What is in the law? What is written in the law? And how readest thou? And the lawyer answers him by saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus responds to this man by saying, You have answered right. He said, This do, and you shall live. This was a man that knew the facts. This was a man that knew the scriptures. This was a man that without uh, preparation in advance, he knew exactly what the law said. He knew exactly what Jesus was asking him. And he tells him verbatim what it is. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy soul, with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus says, do this and you shall live. But you know, of all the questions of clarification that this man could have asked, notice what he chooses to ask. He doesn't say, how can, I think this is a very important part of this parable. This man does not say, how is it that I can better love the Lord God with all my heart? You know, nowhere in the Bible, in this, in this story, does it say that this man loved the Lord. Nowhere does it say that this man was the kind of man that he should be for the Lord. Nowhere does it say that this man loved the Lord God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. Nowhere does it say that he did that. All that it says is this man knew what Jesus was asking him, and so intellectually speaking now, he says the exact words verbatim, of what, the, of what the Lord was asking of him. But of all the points of clarification. He doesn't ask. How can I do that part any better? And the reason for that is. Because this man did not have a problem. With the concept of loving the Lord. God with all of his heart. Now it doesn't say that he loved him. It doesn't say that at all. It just says that he has no problem with that. Because of all of the points of clarification that he could ask, notice what he says. He says, well, then, who is my neighbor? That's the only thing he thinks about. Who, then, is my neighbor? This man had a problem with people, some people, however many people, I don't know. But this was a man that wanted the parameters drawn by Jesus. He wanted Jesus to say, this is where your duty begins and this is where your duty ends so that this man can do the bare minimum. Who then is my neighbor? You know, I realize when Jesus asks, Jesus says, this do and thou shalt live, that he's talking about obedience that leads to life. You cannot go to heaven without obedient works. You cannot go to heaven without deeds. And Jesus is talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. If one wants eternal life, it requires obedience. But the problem is some people don't want to obey. Isn't that a bad word in today's uh, vernacular? Obey? You know, sometimes in the marriage uh, relationship in the home, Homes are destroyed because Jesus is not there. Homes are destroyed because married couples are not fulfilling the role that God has instructed for them to have in the home. And one of the things that in today's common society, in today's common society, what society says is regarding the submissive role of the wife. They say, no, you don't need to do that. You need to just stand up and be who you are. You need to assert yourself, you know, nowhere in the Bible. And all of you have heard me say this from time to time when I've preached on the home Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the man is the boss or the bully or the tyrant in the home. It just says that he is to have the leadership role in the home. And Paul says, whatever it is about this home, it's to be the same relationship as Jesus is the church. Man is to be the head of his wife as Jesus Christ is the church and he gave himself for it. It is a headship like christ of sacrifice example and performance we must change the way we think to be a christian we must obey obedience is part of it regarding this idea though of someone that wants to have the parameters drawn regarding who your neighbor is you know the uh... Mr. Webster defines a neighbor as a nigh-dweller. That's a person that lives close by. In fact, we use, that, we use that term or we use that phrase sometimes even if somebody's sitting next to you. Like, for example, in school. We have teachers here. When you're in school, pass your paper to your neighbor. Pass it to the one that is next to you. We all that live in homes somewhere have somebody that lives next to us. Mr. Webster says that that, by definition, is a nigh-dweller. It is somebody that is living close by to you. But Jesus says that a neighbor is someone else. A neighbor is something that is more than just that. A neighbor is someone, and he teaches that in our lesson. One more thing, though, about this idea of having parameters drawn. We may never have somebody say, Well, who's my neighbor? But you know what? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we say, Do I really have to go to church all the time? Sometimes we really say, Do I really have to attend Sunday night, Wednesday night? Do I really have to visit the sick? Do I really have to tell people about the Lord? Do I really have to attend every Sunday so I don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together? You see, what we do sometimes is we want the bare minimum. You know what's sad is when people say, well, you know, the only thing you really have to do is Sunday morning. And you know, I'll tell you something about that. The Lord wants us to put him first in our life. He wants us to put the Lord first. He wants us to put Him first in everything that we do. And if the Lord truly is first in everything that we do, we're not going to have conflicts. We're not going to have priority problems. They will always be just as they should be if the Lord is first. Some of you were at Sister Edna Becker's funeral yesterday. One of the things that I said in preaching her funeral was something that I was quite touched by that Nancy said about this 97-year-old Christian woman. She said that when she got to the point where she was too weak and too frail to get herself up to go to services to worship God, you know what she worried about? She worried that maybe the Lord would think that she wasn't trying hard enough. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of dedication? There was something else, too, that she stood for. She not only put the Lord first, but she couldn't comprehend why somebody else wouldn't want to do that. Not so much as, why wouldn't everyone just come to church? It was, I don't understand why everybody wouldn't want to do that, have the desire to serve the Lord and put him first in their life. When we do that, we are just like the lawyer, doing the very same. We want the parameters drawn and outlines where our duty begins and where it ends so we can do the bare minimum. But it doesn't work that way, and it didn't work that way for this lawyer either because true love knows no boundaries. Do you remember that old song we used to sing at the cross that says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And then the next stanza says, But drops of grief could ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. We owe a debt of love that will never in this entire world be paid off. And folks, I'll tell you this. If we could, but in our mind's eye, take even the smallest glimpse at Calvary. If we could, in our mind's eye, reflect back and take the smallest glimpse of Calvary and what was done for us on that lonely hill so far away a long time ago, then we are convinced that we will never, ever pay the debt of love the Apostle Paul wrote a very amazing passage in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8 and in this passage we oftentimes quote it but we leave the second part of this verse out because Paul said a mouthful in that verse Paul says first of all oh no man anything now, how many times have we quoted that verse and rightfully so About the fact that the child of God has the responsibility and the obligation of paying what he owes. If I owe Terry $100, I have to pay Terry $100. If I cannot pay him $100, I need to go to him and say, Terry, can I just pay you $5 a week until it's paid off? When he and I agree on what I'm going to do on those terms and I follow that, then I am not guilty of owing anyone. You see, the problem isn't the debt. The problem is when you stop paying on the debt. So what is Paul saying? Paul is making a description here. First of all, he's saying you have to owe no man anything. In other words, you've got to pay your bills. You've got to satisfy your debts. You have to continue to pay on them until when? Until they're paid off. But let me ask you this. You think I owe Terry a penny after I've paid off my hundred bucks. I don't own the thing. Monetarily speaking, I have paid and honored my debt. Paul says you pay it till when till it's paid off. But then there's something else. There's something that we will not pay off. Paul says, but oh no man, anything but to love, one another. That tells me that that is a debt that I owe. That is a debt that you owe. That is a debt that all mankind owes. That is a debt that you have to pay on. Now, what happens, according to Paul, when you have a debt? When you have a debt, you got to pay on the debt till it's paid off. Well, guess what? I can pay my bills monetarily, but I can't pay the debt of love that I owe. I will never, ever, ever pay it off. That's amazing. If we could only keep that concept in the uh, the forefront of our thinking, then I still, how many times do people say, I don't owe him anything? Why don't you go give him an explanation about it? I don't owe him a thing. Yeah, you do. (laughs) We owe everyone. We owe each other. We owe ourselves to each other in living the Christian life. Pay until it's paid off. You will never pay off the debt of love. And so, at this point, the Lord begins his sermon, a very familiar passage of scripture of the events that now happen, of a certain man that goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and somewhere on that rough and rocky road, he falls among thieves. Somewhere on that place that was rife with robbers, somewhere on that dangerous rocky road, The thieves came, and the thieves overtake him, and the thieves beat him, and the thieves take what he has, and the thieves leave him there for dead. He falls into some foul play, a dangerous place to travel. Jesus says, though, that after this man falls among thieves, some very interesting things are now going to happen. All of a sudden, you've got a fellow back from Jerusalem, and he also is traveling along. He's on this road, too, and all of a sudden, this man is a priest. Jesus pictures a priest. I want you to get this first, please. Number one, he's talking to who? He's talking to a lawyer. He's talking to a Jew. He's talking to a person that is considered among his peers as somebody. The next thing he does is he pictures who? Another religious person, a worshiper of God. He's a priest. What happens? He's walking along, and the Bible says that the priest looks at this man, obviously, laying there, left for dead, left there bleeding. And he looks at him, and he doesn't even so much as go into that man's direction. He just continues on the other side. He doesn't want to be bothered with this. He has no time For this or simply put he just doesn't care and then Jesus says another guy goes by he's a helper around the temple he was also considered among Jews as somebody he was a Levite Levites were those that you remember from time to time that even carried the ark of God and here he is walking along and he's worse he walks over to the man, he looks at the man, and then he passes by on the other side. He doesn't want to worry. He doesn't want to, be, uh, he doesn't want to be troubled with this man who's laying there left for dead. You know, one preacher said one time, have you ever pictured what it was like to be the guy that fell among the thieves? Picture that. Now, Jesus, now remember this. Parables were not fictitious stories. Parables were always true. They were true-to-life narratives. Now, picture it this way. Have you ever thought of what it was to be like if you would have been the guy that fell among the thieves? You're laying there bleeding, and you look up. Now, you would expect people that would pass by from the world. You would expect uh, others, to, even Samaritans, to pass by. You would expect others just to pass on by. But what if you looked up and you saw a priest? You know what you might think? As a preacher said one time. Oh great, finally. A godly man. A worshiper of God. He'll help. But he passes by. Oh, here's a Levite. He's different too. He's a worker for the Lord. He'll help. Only to watch that this man walks over to to him, looks down, and then passes by on the other side. But Jesus says that there's another man. Now, he's pictured in a very uh, unfavorable way. He's speaking to a lawyer, and he's he's really letting him have it. Uh, He just doesn't know it yet. But he speaks about a priest and a Levite in a very unfavorable way. Then he says, after he paints that picture, he says this. He says that there was a certain Samaritan and this Samaritan comes. Now, a couple things. Who was the man that was laying there? Who was he? Was he a Jew? Was he a Gentile? What was the color of his skin? How old was he? Was he a man of stature and status in the community? Was he a homeless man? Who was he? You know, that's the point Jesus is making when he says, a certain man. It means it doesn't matter. It means it doesn't matter. It is anyone. So we now have that picture. Anyone is there, a priest and a Levite, pass on by. The Lord is saying to, in response, Here is your neighbor. This is the one. That's what the Lord is saying. He's saying, this is your neighbor. If you want to know who your neighbor is, it is this man. It is anyone. Anyone that what? We'll get back to that in just a minute. Actually, let's talk about that now. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have the responsibility for? When should I stop and help someone that's in need? What are the parameters? What are the rules? Is it just, well, I don't know them, so I'll just keep on going. Is it, well, I don't want to be troubled with it. Remember that formula that I said a long time ago? That when you have the ability, and then you have the opportunity, then you have the responsibility of helping. If I have the ability to do so, but the opportunity does not come along, I'm not required to have the responsibility of doing anything if I don't have the opportunity to. Maybe I don't have the ability, but I've got the opportunity. I cannot be expected to do what a person needs when I can't fulfill that need. But when I have the ability and I have the opportunity to do it, I have the responsibility to help. Who? My neighbor. Who's the neighbor? Anyone. Jesus then says when he pictures these two men he's picturing these men I think Jesus wants us to look at these two men too I think he wants us to look at the priest I think he wants us to look at the Levite you know why? do you think that that priest back in Jerusalem When he was among his peers, when he was among people that knew him, you think he would have behaved like that? You think he would have gone on this cold and calloused act that he did? You think he would have done that if he was back in Jerusalem among people that knew him and knew who he was? Why, surely not. Maybe he thought, well, out here on the open road, who's going to know anyway? I can't be bothered. I'll just pass on by. I think there's a tremendous lesson there for us. Have you ever gone somewhere and you thought, well nobody knows me here so I can behave a certain way? Maybe I'll dress a certain way. Maybe I'll use a certain kind of language. Maybe I'll make this choice that I wouldn't make if my brothers and sisters in Christ were here. So I'll tell you something, folks, take a long look, take a long look, because what we are is better determined by the way that we behave in places where we are not known. You know, when I leave here, whatever I do away from you, that's me. That's me. That's the real me. That's the real me. Now, prayerfully, it's the same guy that stood before you this morning. Would that all of us would be that. But I'll tell you, that's me. That is me when I am alone. That is me when I am among peers. That is me when I'm out in the world. That is me. What we are is better determined by the way that we behave, by the way that we look, by the way that we talk, and by the way that we dress in places where we are not known. Oh, Christians aren't here. I think I'll just do this. Or do that there's no christians around i think i i think it's safe to go participate in this over here what we are is determined by how we act in places where we are not known that is really us that is the real us well he speaks to this lawyer he speaks about a priest and a levite then he says this he said that a certain samaritan of all people a mixture of a Jew and a Gentile. The Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. Centuries of scorn divided them. In fact, do you remember the day when they had exhausted their vocabulary about Jesus? when they had said every single thing that they could possibly fathom of depravity to say to Jesus of all of the horrible things, when they couldn't think of anything else, they were so frustrated, they thought about the worst thing that could come to their mind, and finally they looked to Jesus and they said, you're a Samaritan and you got a devil. When they had nothing worse to say, they called him a Samaritan. You remember in the last week of the life of Jesus as he's traveling through Jericho? And there were Jews that were present. They were passing along on the way to Jerusalem. The reason that they were on that road is they did so on purpose to avoid Samaria. To avoid the Samaritans. So of all the people that Jesus could have chosen, he chooses somebody that the Jews absolutely despised. He said a certain Samaritan. Again could be anyone, he stops and he has compassion on this man. He gets off of his beast, he bound up his wounds, he poured in oil and wine, he set him on his own beast and he brought him to the end and he says, take care of him. And then in verse 35, the Bible says that on the morrow when he departed, and he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. You see, he spends the entire night cooling this man's fevered brow And the next morning, of all things, he takes him to this place. He reaches in his pocket. He pays the bill. And he says this, you care for him. You do whatever is needed. And if it exceeds the amount that I've given you, when I return, I will pay for it. I will pay you what I owe. You know what's neat about that? He doesn't do what sometimes we do. Maybe some, maybe things that maybe I would do. I did my part, it's his turn to kick in. Well, I got him here. Somebody else needs to kick in. This man is the epitome of second mile religion. This man cools his fevered brow, he takes care of his wounds, he hauls him on his beast, he takes him to the inn, he tells the man take care of him, he reaches in his purse, he pays the man money, and then he says whatever it takes after that. I will pay it if that's not enough. This man is one who had a tender heart. The Samaritan had an assuring voice. He had an open wallet and a willing hand. In summary, he was a godly man. And finally, we see Jesus as he turns back and says in verse 36, he says, which now of these three Thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves. What else could he say but the one that showed mercy? I think it's so important that we understand that what Jesus is saying simply put that we are to love or we're going to be lost. He says that we must love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, strength, and mind. Because in so doing we will serve the God of heaven in the way that we should with all of our being. We'll not have priority problems or conflicts. We will make the right decisions and choices in our life. We will put the Lord first. It'll be demonstrated by our works of obedience. And Jesus also said, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. We that have the ability must understand that when opportunity arises, then we have the responsibility of doing all that we can. You know, in closing this morning, If we could just apply the principles that Jesus puts forth regarding putting others before ourselves, we would never have a conflict that we couldn't get through. We've said it so many times. I need to think of you, and you need to think of me. It's true, though, when we talk about love, some people, some people... Don't give us the warm fuzzies. There are some people that personality conflicts clash with ours. It's easy to love people that you have natural affection for. But Jesus is not commanding that kind of love. Jesus is commanding agape love. He is commanding something that is, you must do this. That's the kind of love that you are to have. But the question is, how am I going to love somebody that I really can't stand? I didn't say hate. Maybe you can't stand to be around the person. Maybe the person is just a sour, sour, sour person. Maybe that person is a sour, negative person. How are you gonna love that guy? You remember our Wednesday night studies several months ago? We pointed out exactly how you love him. In other words, Jesus is not saying, all of a sudden you're gonna wake up one day fulfilling my command and have a good fuzzy warm feeling in your heart. It's not what he says at all the love he's talking about is a command and we learn from our Wednesday night studies that the way that you fulfill this command is you demonstrate your love you show whether you love your brother by the way that you treat that brother you may not get along with a person because you have personality conflicts you know there are members of the church the other day Sandra paid me, I don't know if she was trying to, she was teasing with me, but she paid me what I thought was a pretty good compliment. In fact, I went home, called Tina, I said, you know, I got a pretty good compliment. I was telling her that I had, I really loved Edna Becker, and she said, oh, you love everybody, and uh, man, that's great, that's great, and uh, I know in all of that, that there's people that We just don't get along. There's people in my life that are just difficult to get along with. And every time you try, they are just an absolute, absolute pain in every way. I demonstrate whether I love him or not by the way that I treat him. In fact, we prove that we love God. Remember what Jesus said? Remember what the lawyer said? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. We also learned when we studied on our Wednesday evening studies this, that you show that you love God by loving your brother. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote the following. He said, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Just act like you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will come to love him. If you injure a person that you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield.